Welcome back to The Pilgrim Soul, a podcast about the journey of faith in the world of today. I'm your host, Juliana. And I'm Sophia. And today we're going to be talking about difficulties in prayer. Yeah, so this is a follow-up to, I think it's episode five. And in that episode, we focused more on forms of prayer that have been important for us in our journeys of faith. So if you haven't checked it out, I really recommend listening to that before you listen to this one. Um, Because in this one, we'll be covering distractions and dryness, the two primary forms of difficulties in prayer that every Christian disciple faces. Exactly. So our hope is to talk about these forms of difficulties, to contextualize them in a way that brings to light their spiritual fruitfulness, and also talk about, as we always try to do, real practical ways to address them when we do face them in our own lives. Yeah, I'm really glad that we're doing this topic because, you know, just as my prayer life is the greatest source of joy in my day-to-day life, difficulties in prayer is also one of the greatest sources of sorrow and confusion and um, a big temptation for me to take my gaze away from Christ. And so I'm glad we're having this conversation and I think it'll be helpful for me to renew me on this path of prayer. I completely agree. So where do you think we should start? I feel like we could start with distractions and just talk about how they arise and what the answer to distraction is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that sounds good. So how would you define a distraction? I mean, I think we're all familiar with it, but specifically in the context of prayer, what is a distraction? So as a one word answer, I would describe distraction simply as noise Mm. in your mind, in your heart, even in your environment. Noise that keeps you from focusing on prayer and on God and resting in his presence. So also kind of a form of restlessness, maybe. Yeah, I like that. And I think that, as you mentioned, distractions can come from either inside or outside. Mm -hmm. So interior distractions in my life often take the form of repetitive thoughts about future plans or past worries or whatever it is that I've got going on that day. External distractions, on the other hand, as you said, are often physical noise. So being in a place that's loud with people talking, music playing or sirens, you know, all of these things can distract us from prayer as well and can interrupt our awareness of resting in the presence of God. Mm -hmm. Yeah, those are some good examples. I think there are sources of distraction that are external, but not necessarily physical noises. So for example, social media is a huge Mm. source of noise in my life. Just with its tendency to make you feel like you're always missing out on something, you always need to know the latest news or see the latest posts. And for me, it accustomed me to this constant flow of information. And it was such a source of noise in my life and affecting my well-being and my prayer Mm. so pervasively that I had to get rid of all my social media. Yeah, I think social media is one aspect of a highly technological life that generates a lot of noise. I similarly had to turn off all notifications on my phone to restore some sense of 
solitude and stillness in my external world, that I wasn't constantly being bombarded by news or communication or even just reminders of things to do. All of these things that got me thinking about something that wasn't right in front of me. So I think that's an essential aspect of a distraction. It mm-hmm. it takes you away from the present moment. But as you said, I think we all have different sensitivities. What might be extremely distracting for one person another person can tolerate quite well. And so it takes sort of this interior examination to say, what rabbit hole are my thoughts going down? You know, what's the source of this distraction? And so you can cut it off at the source. Mm -hmm. I agree that technology is one general aspect of our society that gives rise to this culture of noise, or as Cardinal Seurat puts it, the tyranny of noise in our modern world. But I think it also comes from, for example, this expectation of instant gratification and this obsession with Mm -hmm. productivity. They're all ways of taking our attention from, as you were saying, what's in front of us to something else, whether it's elsewhere in space or in time in the future or in the past. Well put. And I'm really glad that you mentioned Cardinal Seurat. For our listeners who don't know, he wrote a fantastic book called The Power of Silence. And that was really pivotal for me in understanding what silence is and how it answers this restlessness of my heart, this tyranny of noise that I live in, that all of us live in in the modern world. And I really love this description of silence that Cardinal Seurat gives. He calls silence a great consuming fire or a blazing furnace. So here he's talking about the silence of God. The silence of the divine life is a fire of love that consumes you. And I think this is really different from at least how I instinctively think of silence. I think of silence more as an absence rather than something so passionate and alive that it will burn me. Yeah, that's such a powerful image. And just to clarify what Cardinal Seurat proposes and what we're endorsing is that the answer to this noise in our life is silence. But let's dig a little bit deeper. We started pretty high level here, but what does silence look like? Yeah, so I think you're making an important distinction there, which is that the silence that Cardinal Seurat is describing so powerfully with that image of the fire, is not just the absence of noise. In fact, it isn't an absence at all. It's an interior state of stillness and of rest that allows you to recognize a presence, that allows you to be filled with a presence, and that presence is God. Beautiful. Beautiful, which is so scriptural, right? It reminds me of the prophet Elijah who heard God in the quiet whisper of the wind. An interior state of stillness and recollection enables us to perceive the presence that always is, but that respects our freedom, as we've talked about in previous episodes. Mm -hmm. And this is a presence on which we depend. I think one of the things that's scary about silence is that you look in and you see that you're fragile and limited, and there's something scary about that. We don't like to confront our mortality and our finitude. But at the same time, that very recognition is the opportunity to say yes and to receive the presence of the one who is creating you and is sustaining you in being. So I think this is why Father Giussani 
says that silence is availability. Silence, the calming of your heart and mind to recognize his presence, is the precondition for receiving him, for encountering him in your life. Yeah, that's such a provocative definition of silence. And Jusani also makes it clear that our hearts have to be educated to this awareness. We are formed through moments of silence and through cultivating this interior state. I think that ties in well with something else that Cardinal Seurat says about silence, which is that it generates a greater charity towards other people because in our moments of silence, we are kind of brought out of our self-centeredness and our gaze is taken off of ourselves and our own person. And then we are available not just to the presence of Christ in prayer, but also in our brothers and sisters, those around us. That really resonates with me. I struggled a lot with rumination and repetitive anxious thoughts in high school. And one of the ways that it harmed my life was by making me unable to be present to the person in front of me. Because when I was so caught in this pattern, I had no bandwidth to receive the person in front of me, Mm -hmm. to recognize that they had needs that I could minister to, but also that they had a love that I needed to receive. And so noise kind of cuts you off and and turns you inward, whereas silence enables you to receive the other and to receive God through the other. Um, So I think that that's a beautiful point that Cardinal Seurat makes, and it really resonates with my experience. Yeah, that's a great example, Sophie. So as we mentioned, we want to offer really practical strategies for overcoming difficulties in prayer, things that have worked for us in the past and things that we're using now. I know I struggle every single day with distractions in prayer. I know I'm not the only one, but this is constantly something we come up against. So what for you have been a few of the most helpful ways of overthrowing the tyranny of noise? Well, the first place I would start and This is so fundamental that it may even be obvious, but simply making the time in my life for silence. Absolutely. It may sound obvious, but I think it's also easy to forget that it doesn't come automatically. Uh, It's funny. I spend most of my days here in Cambridge in silence, probably 23 hours a day (laughs) in silence, (laughs) but I still have to set aside time and space for intentional silence with God, Mm -hmm. because I find often that it's easy to allow my external silence to be filled with interior noise if I haven't intentionally consecrated that time for God. So I think this is a really important place to start. And it echoes what Jesus says in the Gospel of Matthew. He tells us to go into our room and close the door and pray to God the Father. And he leads us an example in this, you know, constantly going up to the mountain or into the wilderness to pray in silence. Yeah, I was always really struck by those passages in the Gospels where we see Jesus retreat to be alone with God in prayer because that time was time he could have spent preaching and converting hearts or healing the sick and continuing to perform his ministry. And his example shows us just how fundamental silence is to relationship with God and to the human experience. Absolutely. That reminds me of Mother Teresa's line, isn't it? 
when a reporter asked her why they didn't cut down their time of prayer so they could do more works of charity with the poorest of the poor, she made it very clear that without this time in silence, the sisters would not have the life and the joy that they needed to go about their ministry. So we see this everywhere throughout the church. Yeah, there's another really great story of Mother Teresa that makes this same point. One time when her sisters came to her and were complaining about how stressed and overwhelmed they were with all of their duties, she added an hour of adoration to their schedules. And she always said that after the time of prayer, everything else fell into place for her and the other missionaries of charity. Mm. That's provocative. Uh, I think it points to another really practical recommendation, which is to actually schedule this into your calendar. Yeah, I schedule literally everything into my calendar, including moments of prayer. So this has been a really valuable tool in my own life. I think if we're thinking about the brain, it's really helpful if the time that you choose is consistent. This is one thing I found has helped me combat distractions. Training my body to expect to spend certain times in silence at certain times of day. I recognize this isn't possible with everyone's schedule, but choosing a consistent time and a consistent space and setting that aside as being for God and for silence with God is helpful because there will be all of these cues that signal to your nervous system that now is not the time to be focusing on your grocery shopping list and your next work assignment, but now is the time to be focusing on God. And this is something that, you know, from the first centuries of the church, Christians have always turned to sacred spaces to direct our bodies and our minds and our spirits to God. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a really good suggestion. And these are all helpful for when we're thinking about prayer in our day-to-day home. But I think it's also good to mention that sometimes we need to go on pilgrimage or retreat and that this is another way of finding silence is stepping away from the demands and duties of everyday life, not because God can't be found in them, but precisely because from that vantage point, we see more clearly where God is moving in our daily life. Mm -hmm. I think this is especially helpful when we know it'll be hard to find time for silence. Over Christmas break, I went on pilgrimage to the Shrine of St. Elizabeth Ann Seton in Maryland. And one of the reasons I chose to do so is because I knew that being home with family would be a change of pace. It was beautiful to have that as a moment of recollection in the midst of an otherwise very busy and very full season. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sustained moments of silence. I think that's really important. Mm -hmm. Another great aspect of pilgrimages is that it involves your whole person. There's a physical aspect of going to a particular site. And I think that speaks to another aspect of maintaining silence. And that's simply recognizing yourself as an embodied being and taking care of yourself. For me, as my friends and family know, it is very difficult for me to be in a state of peace when I'm hungry, for example, (laughs) or (laughs) 
I haven't slept well. And I also find that as simple as this may sound, my posture during prayer really affects my focus. So if I'm sitting up straight or if I'm kneeling versus if I'm like slouched over or half laying down in my bed trying to read something, there's a really big difference in how those different postures affect my attitude in prayer. Those are really good points. I could not agree more. So I think we've covered a number of ways, external ways to cultivate silence, but I think equally, if not more important, is sort of an internal movement to silence. And I think one of the first things that jumps out at me is that it has to begin in mortification, that we have to let go of our attachments to our planning and our control and our productive output we have to let go of these things to be able to rest Mm -hmm. absolutely and relatedly i would say we need to teach ourselves self-discipline to let go of our desire for instant gratification and to maximize our pleasure in a particular moment because learning silence as we said it's an education and it's hard This is a practice. It's like a muscle that we build over time. And like building muscle in the gym, you have to be committed and disciplined. And often, like going to the gym, it's extremely humbling because if you avoid silence, you never see how distracted you are. Yes. But as soon as you try to start living with interior recollection, at least in my experience, that's when you realize how far from that state you are. Yes. Me too, absolutely. And I think it's important on this point to also emphasize that despite what we're saying about discipline and commitment, being faithful in prayer is not something that we can just accomplish on our own will, but rather it's a cooperation with God's grace and with the Holy Spirit's work in our own hearts and minds. Absolutely. I'm really glad you mentioned that. And to go back to our image from the very start, you know, If God's silence is a consuming fire, it's his love that burns away all of our restlessness and enables us to receive him. So I think silence could be described as allowing God to love us. Mm. Yeah, that's a really beautiful way to put it. I think on this note, part of that is forgiving yourself for your distractions. One of my temptations is to get discouraged or angry with myself when I find that you know, five minutes into my meditation, I'm still thinking about my work or whatever. (laughs) And here I've been really helped by a line that I read, I think in Father Jacques Philippe's little book, Time for God. He wrote that every distraction is an opportunity to make an act of love in drawing your attention back to Christ. And this line has remained with me because it totally frames distractions in a different way. When your mind wanders, it's not a failure that you need to bemoan, but an invitation to say, oh, Lord, I'm here for you. I'm here with you. And you wouldn't have that opportunity if just effortlessly you could keep your mind fixed on God. And so it's really a beautiful microcosm of the divine economy. It is our misery and our need that enables us to receive him. So this is a good way for me to look at distractions with a little more patience and myself with a little more compassion. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's beautiful. 
distractions are a way to show Jesus that you love him more than the particular thing that is interrupting. I find too that it might seem like a contradiction, but distractions can be a way of inviting Christ deeper into my reality because I can offer up to him whatever I'm thinking about in that moment. So if worries about an upcoming exam interrupt my prayer, I can take a second to ask Christ to help me with that upcoming challenge and to offer him the outcome and allow him to do whatever he wants with it and then turn my attention back to my prayer so that the distraction is not something I just have to fight off but can be even incorporated into the dialogue that I'm having with Christ at the moment. I love that. So it's not at all fruitless. Mm -hmm. That's wonderful. An image I find really helpful in this practice that you're talking about is actually taking in my hands whatever it is that is distracting me and putting it at the foot of the cross. Just visualizing in my mind, taking whatever it is and giving it to him. And it reminds me that in the end, none of these are obstacles to relationship with him. Nothing can separate me from his love in the words of St. Paul. Mm -hmm. And so I think another helpful reminder for me when I'm facing a period of distraction is that ultimately they don't have any power over me. Right. That's powerful. On that note, maybe we should move on to our second form of difficulty in prayer because distractions can't separate us from God, but we sometimes feel separated from God when we're in a stage of desolation. Yeah. So our second category of difficulties in prayer is desolation because Like distraction, this is something that we all experience in our faith life at one point or another. So how would you define the term desolation? That's a tricky one because I think it has a different valence for just about everybody. But I would say broadly, desolation is any time when the soul feels like it's far from God. And maybe not just far from God, but growing further away from God. So for me, this often takes the form of a sense of absence and emptiness. Like I look inside or I look around me and I don't have that same rush of awareness of God's presence that usually brings me this peace and this joy. And so even if intellectually nothing's changed, I still know that God is present. In my heart, I don't feel that. I don't have the lived awareness of his presence. And so it can get pretty dark. Mm -hmm. I think that's a good description. Based on what you said, I would say that the difference from distraction is our awareness of Christ's presence. Because with distractions, we turn our gaze elsewhere and we forget about him, essentially. And with desolation, we know that God is there. We're looking for him, but we can't see or feel him. And we often feel like he does not see us. Mm. And I think that the words of Psalm 13 are a really good description of how the soul feels in such moments. Oh, yeah. The psalmist says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I bear my grief in my soul? Look, answer me, Lord, my God. That psalm has often been my own prayer in my moments of desolation. Mm -hmm. And a beautiful reminder that this is a natural fluctuation in the spiritual life. To go from consolation and, 
awareness of this profound intimacy to states of desolation and this feeling of dryness that throughout salvation history, this has been a dynamic in those who are seeking the face of God. So that's, you know, already something comforting for me is recognizing that I'm not alone in this because I think that the temptation when I feel exceptionally far from God is to give in to doubt and to allow it to undermine the foundations of my certainty that God loves me, that he is present, that this journey of faith of mine is not just some fantastical invention of my imagination. Yeah, so that's, I think, for me, where the danger is with desolation. The danger isn't in the feeling of sadness. The danger is if I allow that sadness to undo the work that I've done of verifying in my life that his promise and his claim is true. Mm -hmm. That's absolutely right, because in moments of desolation, you're often kind of flying blind. Yeah. We also hear the terms dryness or darkness used for this state of the soul. And to pick up on what you were saying about salvation history, I think that's a really good point too. My most recent experience of desolation was during the season of Advent. And I really identified with the people of Israel waiting for their Messiah that we reflect on during that time because I too knew of the existence of God, knew of his presence in my life, and yet I longed for him to burst into my life in this dramatic and beautiful way like the moment of the incarnation. That's beautiful. You mentioned that this happened during a season. It's helpful for me to remember that desolation can last a different amount of time. Some days it's like morning prayer, I'm in desolation, evening prayer, I'm in consolation. And other times it really is weeks or months. Or if we think about the saints, there are saints who were in desolation for years. Mother Teresa for, what was it, 40 years she experienced desolation. So this isn't a sign that we're not holy, that we're no good. This isn't the product of our circumstances or our effort or lack thereof. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we see Jesus himself experience desolation when he feels abandoned by God on the cross and voices his pain of that feeling of abandonment. That last image of Christ on the cross, I would say that it points to a beautiful and consoling truth about desolation, which is that it would not be possible if we hadn't met Christ. Mm. That the feeling of the absence of God is not only a reminder of our desire for him, but actually a reminder that we've met him. I know a priest in CL in Communion and Liberation who says, you can't miss someone you've never met whenever anyone talks to him about feeling confused and far from God on their journey of faith. The very feeling of missing Christ is a testament to the fact that we've fallen in love with him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really beautiful. And in that way, desolation can become a gift and a verification of the fact that we are made for him and for a relationship with him. Yeah, that's a good point that desolation can be a gift, which is so hard to remember when you're in it. But it's true. And the saints testify to this over and over again. 
So how would you say, what would you say are the primary ways in which we can receive desolation as a gift? What are the fruits of desolation when we live it well? Yeah, so I would start with desolation as purification. Drawing on both St. John of the Cross and St. Ignatius of Loyola, who describe periods of desolation as essential stages on the journey towards perfect union with God that detach us from everything else in this world, material things, but they also detach us from consolation. Our own feelings, even the beautiful and joyful feelings that we experience in prayer are not why we pray. And moments of desolation allow us to be tested and fortified in that truth and also let go of even those beautiful moments out of love for God and desire to serve him faithfully. That's such a comfort to hear. And it's true. It's an invitation to say, God, I love you more than every gift that you give me. Of course, not because the gifts are bad, but because they are meant to lead us to him. They're not ends in and of themselves. It reminds me really of the dynamic in the gospel when Christ is rejected by the Pharisees precisely because he didn't fit their expectations of what the anointed one would look like and how he would behave. And it used to blow my mind that Christ was in front of them and they could not recognize him as the Messiah because he must have been an exceptional, vibrant presence. But I think as I've grown older and realized just how attached I am to my own ideas and my own preconceptions about God and otherwise, I've seen how possible it is, mm-hmm. how easy it is to remain attached to those instead of loving God more than them. And so this is, I think, one fruit of desolation that I really need in my life and in my journey of prayer. Yeah, absolutely. And I think another fruit of desolation is the recognition that Relationship with God is a pure, gratuitous gift from him. Mm -hmm. There is nothing that we do to create that relationship or to merit it, but rather it is freely extended by God and something to be profoundly grateful for as the greatest gift of our lives, the fact that he loved us into being and his love continues to sustain us each and every day. I was just praying this morning about my journey of faith and how Christ has changed my life since he so dramatically entered the scene. And I kind of had the image of him dragging me, kicking and screaming (laughs) to the altar. It's kind of embarrassing, right? Just the degree of resistance that I put up in my attachment to my sin and my distraction and whatnot. But it's also such a comfort to recognize this because you're right. Like, It is a gift. It's his initiative in my life. It's his grace that transforms me. And the measure to which I recognize that it is a gift is the extent to which I can say yes to it. Whereas if I'm fixed on my idea that it's my effort and my plan, then I miss the opportunity to accept his will. So I think that in that sense, yeah, the desolation is an incredible opportunity for spiritual growth. Yeah, that's beautiful. And I'm reminded too of so many saints who rejoiced in their darkness because they recognized the many 
tremendous gifts that God had given them and they rejoiced in the opportunity to nonetheless praise him in darkness and give him that great gift of praise and worship when when it's difficult to do that. Padre Pio said that our most powerful creed is the one proclaimed in darkness. I love that line and it's always such a comfort when I'm in desolation. Yeah, and I think that on that note, it can also be a real invitation to solidarity with others. One thing that I like praying about when I am in desolation is my gratitude for the gift of faith and my awareness that there are so many people who don't know God. So praying in gratitude in that way, I think, enables desolation to open us up to love of others, that we can take on their spiritual suffering or their longing and participate in it in a way that we never could if we were just living in consolation all the time. Yeah, that's a really good point. And it reminds me of the charism of Mother Teresa, who, as you mentioned, experienced decades of desolation. I think that knowing this can scare some people because when they experience desolation, their mind immediately goes to, oh, but this can continue for decades. But in fact, if you know her story, you see that her long desolation was something that Christ asked of her as part of her mission in the world. She was to bring the love of Christ to those who were most rejected by society. And as part of this mission, Christ also asked her to bear the spiritual suffering of those who remain apart from him so that she could enter into solidarity with them and be his light to those parts of our society. Unbelievable. She really is a saint for our times. And challenging for me because my inclination is always when I'm faced with spiritual suffering to try to fix it. But to be able to enter into it and accompany them, I think that's that's what's asked of us is to help carry that cross. Yeah. And this is not something that comes quickly and accompanying others reminds you of that. Scripture tells us that for God, a thousand years are like a day and a day is like a thousand years. And so desolation also teaches us patience to wait right. for the unfolding of God's plan in his time. Which is so hard, though, sometimes. Yeah, it's really hard all the time. <laughs> um, so what helps you do that? Like what practical recommendations would you offer for those of us who are experiencing desolation right now? I think the most important is to not give up on prayer. It's always tempting when we encounter an obstacle to want to hit pause or even run away from it. But as we've been talking about, the fruits come from being faithful. You know, I mentioned how the words of the psalmist in Psalm 13 have been so powerful for me in moments of desolation, in part because the psalm goes beyond what I referenced earlier. And after the psalmist explains this profound feeling of isolation from God, his creator, he then goes on to nonetheless tell God that he trusts in God's merciful love and that he rejoices in God's many gifts and then closes by promising to continue to sing psalms to the name of the Lord. For me, when we're talking about living desolation well, this is such a model of both the pain that desolation can cause, but also the beauty and persistence in prayer as we react to it. 
That's inspiring. And the psalmist attitude in that psalm, I think, really points us to the fact that desolation is an invitation to trust God. We trust that God is leading us through this. We trust that God is present, and we trust that this is for our good. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I would add that as important as it is to persist in prayer, that doesn't mean our prayer can't begin to look different in some way or another, whether it's trying something new or inviting others into your prayer more than you usually do. There are any number of ways that we can continue praying and at the same time try to encounter a new Christ in our prayer. One thing that Father Giussani says is that silence leads to recognizing with wonder the event of Christ. So it's it's remembering Christ's presence with you and that always gives rise to the wonder of a child. Mm. And that for me has been helpful, remembering that I'm always invited to look with the eyes of one who has never seen this before. Whether that means going to mass and being more attentive to the words of the prayers or reading scripture as if I had never heard the gospel before. These are really helpful ways for me in cultivating the attitude of a child and re-entering the wonder that I think all of us should have if we're looking at reality properly. It's more reasonable to look at all of life and all of your faith in that way with this awareness of the newness and the novelty of it and its givenness at the same time. Yeah, that's that's so beautiful. And you mentioned attentiveness to the mass as a way to have your desolation bear fruit. I think, yeah, the sacraments are so important. The Eucharist, but also the sacrament of confession. St. Teresa of Avila describes the soul as a mirror, which sin clouds, making it harder to see God. And in times of dryness and darkness, where maybe the mirror is already a little bit darker inherently, we shouldn't be making it any harder for ourselves. And so frequent confession, by helping us stay as spiritually close to God as possible, can help lessen this pain and it can help us be awake enough to do what you were just describing and see all of our reality with, with new eyes. That is a great recommendation. Absolutely. I think it points to the essential truth that, as we've talked about before, our salvation doesn't come about alone. You know, every time I go to confession, it's not just for me, but it's actually for the whole body of Christ. This is a gift for all of them that I'm freed in this way. And I think this points to one last recommendation that I'd want to make, which is that it's helpful to rely on on others, our fellow companions on this pilgrim journey, because God draws us all to himself together. And while I might be in desolation at this point, maybe you aren't. And you can remind me that his promises are true. And you can praise him while I beg him to answer my sorrow. And together, he's going to lead us to heaven. So I think very practically asking for help and for prayers from others, but also just trusting spiritually in the mystical body of Christ, which is the church. Absolutely. And our participation in that body and the ability to accompany each other are such beautiful gifts uh, that God has given us 
to sustain us in this pilgrimage. And so to turn away from that would be really to miss out on something very meaningful. Man, I'm fired up. (laughs) (laughs) Who knows when the next opportunity to practice these will be, but probably very soon. On the note of practical recommendations, as we do here at the Pilgrim Soul, we should probably close out with our media recommendation and our weekly challenge. Yeah, so our media recommendation for this week is a poem called East Coker. It's the second poem in the Four Quartets by T.S. Eliot. It's really a reflection on the cyclical nature of the world and of human life, including Eliot's own life. And he includes a description of our experience of darkness and the human drama contained in these moments that I would say really echoes St. John of the Cross. So I highly recommend spending some time with that poem this week. Phenomenal. Our weekly challenge this week is to go on a silent walk. So preferably if it's safe, leave your phone at home, Don't listen to music or even this podcast as much as we want you to be (laughs) listening. Um, But just allow your heart and your mind to settle and wait for something beautiful to happen to you. Take it as a moment to receive. Yeah, I love that. Let us know how it goes. Yeah, you can reach us at our email, which can be found in the show notes, as well as all the other resources we mentioned during this episode and our show's Instagram page. We really, really love to hear from our listeners, so please reach out. And if you've enjoyed this podcast and following along with us, please leave us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts to help spread the word and help others find us. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode of The Pilgrim Soul, and we'll see you next week.